views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hey, everyone. It's Gene Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Everyday Wealth. So my husband has a theory about big purchases. He believes that once purchases get over a particular size, and I'm talking about things like big vacations and cars and homes, that there is no such thing as buyer's remorse. And as I was prepping for this show on home buying in this market, it occurred to me that although he is usually right on most things, and I'm not just saying that because he's listening, I think he is wrong about this, particularly in the last few years. Research shows that people who bought homes during the pandemic actually had some major regrets. 30% believed they spent too much. 26% said they bought too quickly. Even luxury buyers were not immune. About a quarter of those who bought in the past two years, according to Coldwell Banker, were not happy with the location, the lack of neighborhood amenities, the property size, or a host of other factors. Now, fortunately, we are not under those pandemic pressures anymore. The housing market is in a very different place. And so today we are going to give you an update on the real estate market. We're going to talk about the smart way to find and buy a home today or even a second home if that's what you're looking for. We've got expert real estate advice from an economist with the National Association of Realtors on tap, as well as our friend Isabel Barrow in the house. Isabel, of course, is a wealth planner with Edelman Financial Engines. Toward the end of the show, she's got a special announcement for clients of EFE as well. But for now, let me just set the table. As I was saying, the housing market today doesn't really look like the housing market of a few years ago. Interest rates were already low when the pandemic forced them down further, allowing people to lock in 30-year mortgages with rates of 3% or even less. Of course, the pandemic brought along with it other changes as well. For example, droves of people fled large cities like New York, Chicago, San Francisco in favor of quieter suburbs or smaller cities. The work from home phenomenon meant you could really work from anywhere and live anywhere. And all of this drove a massive spike in the price of homes and a rush by home builders to build as much as they could if they could get their hands on the necessary supplies. Housing prices and those supply chain issues were big contributors to the inflation spike that we experienced coming out of the pandemic. And you all know what happened next. 
the Federal Reserve began aggressively hiking interest rates to curb that inflation. Mortgage rates soared from record lows to about 7% today. Home prices are up in some cases by as much as 50% from the lows that they experienced early in 2020. So where does all of that put us right now? Quite frankly, in a little bit of a pickle. Only 21% of people say it's a good time to buy a house. That's according to Gallup. And it's a record low since they have been tracking that number going all the way back to the 1970s. Making the situation worse, there is a shortage of homes to buy, in part because higher mortgage rates have made existing homeowners reluctant to move. And I, I get that. Why would you move if you've got a mortgage at 3 or 4%? Chances are any new mortgage payment that you lock yourself into is going to be significantly higher than if you just stayed put. The result, Redfin found that just 1% of the homes across the country changed hands this year, which translated into buyers having far fewer homes to choose from. But as you guys know, I am an optimist. And the good news is we're starting to see a little bit of light in this tunnel. Home prices in some areas are starting to come down a little bit. Certain markets, the ones that saw really big spikes in the pandemic, have started to see some declines. And we can start asking the question again, when is a good time to buy a house? For help getting into the specifics, I want to welcome Isabel Barrow back to the show. Isabel is a director of financial planning at Edelman Financial Engines. Always great to see you. Hi, Jane. Great to see you, too, and great to be back. We have received a lot of email questions from listeners on real estate, and I know that you are getting a lot of requests for real estate information as well. I want to share one with everybody, but before I do that, let me just remind you, if you're listening and you've got a question for Isabel or one of our other financial advisors, just go to everydaywealth.com, send it my way. That's what David did. And here's his question. He writes, I'm considering purchasing a home, but concerned that prices may just be too high. Should I move forward with plans to purchase a home or wait on the sidelines, hoping that prices will fall? What do you think? Well, first of all, David, thanks for the question. The best piece of advice that I can give is you've got to think about, first of all, what your needs are. And you should not let the current market determine whether or not you buy a house. You know, if you're ready to buy a house, if you have the financial means to do so, and it's a good time for you to do it, and you found the home of your dreams, if you're prepared and you've got all your ducks in a row, then it's a good time. You know, you should go ahead and make that decision based on your situation, not the market, and trying to wait it out for a dip or wait for something to give. Because you never know when it's going to happen. I think that's very true. And I also think historically, 7% mortgages feel really, really high, but maybe they're not as high 
certainly as they were when our parents were taking out mortgages in the 80s. No, you hear stories all the time about, you know, I finally got out of my 18% mortgage, but at the same time, they maybe had a treasury bond that was paying them 18% too. So rates were just different. And I think, I mean, I remember when I bought my first house, rates were, I mean, it was in the eights or eight, you know, high eights. And, and so when things went down to seven, I was like, great, let's refinance. So I think it's all relative, right, to the long term. But, you know, I mean, things could change, but I also think you've got to look at your situation first and foremost and, and let that be the deciding factor as to whether or not you're ready to buy. You said the word prepared. How would David know if he's prepared or if he's not? Well, there's a lot of ways that I would think you could measure preparedness, but there are probably two primary ones. The first of which is, do you have enough money for your down payment? You know, have you done a good job of saving, of of socking money away, or do you have something from a previous home sale, money in the bank? Typically, we want that down payment, ideally, to be 20%. And the the reason is that that's the number that you need to put down in order to avoid, in most cases, paying um, private mortgage insurance, which we also call PMI. The second one is how long are you going to be in the home? Typically, the the range that you need to be in the home in order to have it make sense for you to buy versus rent is at least five to seven years. And the rationale is because it's a very high cost to get into a house and to get out of a house in terms of the commission, the taxes, the there's just the everything involved in it. And also the risk that you take, you know, if you're in the house just for a short term, the risk that you take that the market could move against you and you're selling the house for less than what you purchased it for. So typically that five to seven year time frame, you need to make sure you're going to be there for that period of time and that you have a down payment of 20%. And then I think, you know, it also goes without saying that you need to have enough to be able to cover the mortgage and the insurance and taxes and all of that without it putting you into the hole for some of your other goals. So that would kind of roughly define preparedness. Well, and I think sometimes people don't pay enough attention to the things that fall into that category that you just described as and all of that, right? The cost to live in a house can just be much more than people expect, which is why three years, four years in, you still see people sitting with empty living rooms because they haven't had any money spared to buy furniture. Or like no rugs and no right. window treatments because when they realize <laughs> how expensive it is to get like shutters or blinds, they're, you know, shell-shocked. Or even it's things like you buy a new construction home, you think it's all ready to go, and then you walk in and there's no landscaping, you know, and you don't, so you've got not a touch of, you know, not a drop of grass. And and there's just a lot of things that I think you don't think about, you know, if you haven't already owned a home. So for first-time home buyers, that's a little bit more of sticker shock on the all of the other things. We moved in to the same neighborhood as my brother and sister-in-law when we bought our first home, and they were gracious enough to open up Quicken. Everybody was using Quicken at the time and actually take us through their monthly budget and show us this is what it costs to mow the lawn and this is what it costs to shovel the snow and all of those other things that you might not think about. Let's talk a little bit more about mortgages, considering that rates, as I said, have doubled in the past few years. What are you advising clients right now? Is it still that 30-year mortgage is the best thing to do? Yeah, we, we've been pretty consistent with this advice for as long as I can remember. You know, we continue to believe in a big, long, that means 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, even though interest rates have gone up. Let me just make clear, though, that doesn't mean bigger than you can afford. <laughs> that just means 
at 80-20, right? 20% down, really no more, no less for most people. And mortgaging, you know, the 80% on a 30-year loan, fixed rate. I think some of the primary reasons, there's a lot of reasons why we recommend that, but some of the primary ones are liquidity and flexibility with your money. So those are two of the key points. You know, if all your money is tied up in your house, you lose control of that money until you sell the house. I equate this sort of to sitting, you're sitting on top of this pot of gold, but you can't use it. You know, you've got the money, but it's all in the home and you can't get to it unless you sell the house, which you may not want to do. But if instead you're using leverage to your advantage in the form of a mortgage, you can still use the bulk of that money during that 30-year period of time or invest it or, or live with it while still also getting the use of the house as well. So we want you to have flexibility with your money in order to be able to prepare for some of your other financial needs that are not just owning a house. You know, that could be preparing for retirement. That could be sending your kids to college, you know, being having an emergency fund for job loss. You don't want to focus on just the one goal of, I don't want to have a mortgage, and then you're going to lose sight of some of the other things or events that could happen in your life along the way that are really important. And also keep in mind that if you pay off the mortgage early, you're losing the compounding nature of growing your money over the long term and some of the value that that could add to completing your other financial goals on top of just owning your home outright. Can we talk specifically about arms and more specifically about hybrid arms. So I remember the last time mortgages were in this cycle where rates were going up and people start getting interested in adjustable rate products because the money out the door on the monthly payment is lower. I understand the risk in one-year arms and that they can be a risky product because your rate can jump to percentage points in a in a year. It can do it successively and you can end up paying a lot more than you thought. But these hybrid arms that allow people to lock into a fixed monthly payment for the first five, seven, or 10 years before the rate starts adjusting, is that ever a good idea? If you know that you are likely to be in your house five or seven or 10 years, wouldn't it make sense to try to match that time period to the length of the loan? Well, I think in theory it could, right? Because then you have a lower payment and it allows you to get into the house that you want for a certain period of time. But you're also asking yourself to now know what the future holds, which is really, really difficult and also highly risky, right? Now you're in a situation where you're in a house, you have to get out of it after the 10th year in theory because you know the payment is gonna jump way up and you're saying to yourself, well, yeah, but I'm going to move out of this house before the end of the 10th year. But then something happens and your job, you have a job change or a family change or, a, you know, death or a divorce or a marriage or something. And you're like, now I want to stay in this house. Well, in order to get out of that or to defer that risk, you've got to now refinance. And what if rates are even worse? So I think it's tricky to try to get into something where you are leaving the future kind of costs up in the air. And a 30-year fixed loan is a much safer way to go. Now, granted, there are probably cases where, you know, if it's an absolute guarantee, you're going to be moving, you're in the military, or right. I don't know, then I'm, I'm sure there, there are cases where one could argue that that makes sense. Um, I still think it leaves the door open to a lot of risk that you could just, you know, not take by going into a 30-year fixed loan. And, and the reality is, I mean, how much more is it really going to cost you to get into that 30-year fixed than the arm? Do you have any perspective on 
renting versus buying in this market? Well, I think for a lot of people, there are a couple cases where I would say renting makes a lot of sense. Number one, if you don't know for sure that this is a location you're going to stay in. You know, we've talked in past shows about trends in people picking up and, you know, retiring in another state or because of the pandemic, you know, and the Zoom effect picking up and, and leaving where they had been for a long period of time and going to somewhere completely new. You know, I think it's risky to make that decision to buy in a place you've never lived before because you may not like it and you may decide you want to move. And and again, if you're not going to be there for five to seven years or more, you're spending a lot of money to make that decision. So I think renting in a new location, that makes a lot of sense. And I also think renting while you're saving for your down payment or while you're getting yourself prepared to buy, that also makes a lot of sense. Or if you're going to be somewhere temporarily, like you wouldn't be able to move to this new, you know, you're, you're moving because of work for a couple of years here or a couple of years there. You, you're not really willing to commit to that five to seven year time frame. Renting makes a lot more sense. I think that the other important factor, and we've sort of alluded to this a little bit, is that 7% mortgages, historically, they're just about average, right? I mean, if you look over the past 50 years, in 27 of those years, mortgage rates were where they are right now. They were at 7% or they were even higher. And so people who are thinking, oh my gosh, this is so expensive, historically, not really. Right. That's a really good point. I mean, it's possible that the 30-year mortgage rates could go even higher. You know, later on this year, it could be 8 or 9%, making that 7% look really appealing. And you're going to look back and say, well, I wish I'd gotten in at 7 because now it's 9. But on the flip side, they could also fall from where they are now, which means that if that happens, and let's say it falls by a percent or two, and it's down to 5%, well, then guess what? You can refinance and get in at a lower rate. So I think, you know, there's risk on both sides that it could go higher or it could go lower. But ultimately, if it's right for you to buy a house now, you've got to make that decision based on all of your other financial factors and not just let the fear of that rate drive the decision. Personal finance is more personal than finance. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by an economist from the National Association of Realtors to talk more about today's market. Stay tuned. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us on Everyday Wealth. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Isabel Barrow from Edelman Financial Engines. We are talking about all things real estate. And one thing that has become very apparent about the current real estate market is that although prices have ticked up, we are looking at a different market. 
than 2008, where housing prices across the country tanked. Yes, there's been a dip in house prices when you look at the averages, a very small dip. Um, but there are also regional and state-specific trends at play. And I think it boils down to that old cliche. It's just location, location, location. Isabel, when you look at locations, where are you seeing actual value? Well, like you touched on earlier, I mean, the places where housing prices are dropping right now tend to be out west. And that's partially because those were some of the hottest markets coming out of the pandemic that we're talking about California, Arizona, Nevada, even Idaho. You know, those are areas that are sort of cooling off right now. But even with the drop in prices you're seeing, the affordability is still pretty bad in those areas. You know, where you see more value, prices are rising, but affordability is better. And those are places like in the middle of the country and in the South. These are my states. These are my states where I grew up. So let's name them. So in the middle of the country, we're seeing strong markets in Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana. And then as we move down south, I mean, we see a lot of people retiring to Alabama, to Georgia, to the Carolinas. Florida is still sort of surprisingly an appealing market, even though we know that prices in Florida have been very high post-pandemic. But outside of those two regions, like the middle of America and the south, there are also a couple of New England, you know, Northeast states, um, New Jersey and Maine both also have pretty appealing real estate markets, real estate prices. What other things should people be keeping in mind as they look to potentially get into their first house or even their retirement house? Well, I think that, you know, you have to remember that a house is a place to live, not just an investment or not solely an investment. And don't assume also that the house that you buy is going to be the best investment you're ever going to make. You know, we support home ownership. I'm all for it. And we recommend that you try to view your house, again, as a place to live and not as an investment. You're always going to need a place to live. You will always have a payment also. You know, even if you pay off that mortgage, you're still going to have taxes and insurance and and payments and, and utilities and upkeep and maintenance. You know, and if you're not a homeowner um, or if you're a renter, you, you're still going to always have a payment to live somewhere. And you want to factor in sort of as you're thinking about that home ownership, the true cost of it. Again, as we said, that you're factoring in all of the other things that come up along the way. You know, every 20 years, let's say it's a new roof or or it's a new AC unit or it's like we were talking about, like the landscaping or, mm-hmm. or whatever. There are so many surprising costs. You know, you've got to pay the security system. You've got to pay for the ring or whatever that, you know. So it's upkeep, it's maintenance, it's upgrades, it's repairs, you know, it's the taxes, it's the insurance also, but it's all of that. And that all has to be boiled into the true cost. And I think it's not always the quote unquote path to riches that it's sometimes made out to be in social media or TikTok. Not, I don't even watch TikTok, but, you know, supposedly on TikTok or social media, you know, there's the people touting all of these, you know, buying hundreds of places and, and making a killing on it. But, no, you see that and you have to understand that maybe they are doing okay with their real estate portfolio, but chances are better. They're just making a lot of money on TikTok, right? They're just, <laughs> they're, they're just, they're putting their information out there. And if people, millions of them are watching it, that is how they're making their money. So make no mistake. 
And what I'd like about what you're saying about the maintenance, about the roof, about the fact that you're going to have to replace the AC units, which we actually just had to do, is that that's the reality, right? And it's not, oh, if you don't want to live there anymore, you can go and rent this place out on Airbnb in a heartbeat. Zoning boards have made that really, really difficult in a lot of places. And I don't know, it seems like when we look at real estate, and I don't blame HGTV, I watch a lot of HGTV, but what we're seeing is a fantasy. What we're seeing is house porn, and you shouldn't necessarily put your retirement dollars to work in that way. Yeah, I agree. And I think that especially when people start thinking about investment real estate, you know, buying rentals or buying Airbnbs. Listen, if there are a lot of people who've been very successful in doing that, but it's really hard to do. And there's a couple of pieces of advice that I'll give about that when it comes to investment real estate, because um, one of the key things that you want to not do is use a mortgage. And we were talking about how useful leverage is for owning your own home, but it is completely the opposite when we're talking about buying investment real estate, right? If you're thinking about renting out a house or a condo or going the Airbnb route or some other type of investment property, we advise against buying it with borrowed money, meaning don't use a mortgage to make those purchases. Because, you know, again, if it goes well, then great, you've, you've made a lot of money and everything worked out great. But if it doesn't work out, which let's face it, can happen, it's happened to me personally, it can happen, you run the risk of losing a lot of money and then still being on the hook for those monthly mortgage payments that you can't get out of and maybe you can't sell the place or, you know, God knows. So I think for most people, a better approach to building wealth is to invest in a broadly diversified portfolio of investments, have your own real estate be your place to live. If you're buying investment properties, do so without leverage um, and let your money grow that way. And get educated before you dip a toe in the water of rental properties. I'm sure our next guest could talk to us all about that. Isabel and I are happy to welcome Jessica Louts to the show. Jessica is the Deputy Chief Economist and Vice President of Research at the National Association of Realtors. Who better to talk to about this crazy market because she spends her time focusing on real estate and housing trends. What a perfect person to help us unpack all the things that are going on today. Jessica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, we're really excited to have you because I've got to say, I, this is confusing. There are good signs. There are bad signs. There are signs that you should never leave your house and your current mortgage again. <laughs> where where do you see things right now as you're looking at the market and trying to sort of dig into what's going on today and what's coming up in the near future? What are you seeing? Yeah, it is a it's a pretty messy picture, honestly. Uh, we have winners right now in the housing market. Those are people who purchased a home in the last couple of years and locked in those historically low interest rates, uh, or people who have been in their home for a while and they have a, a very large amount of housing equity as home prices have continued to go up. And then we have those who are really being held out of the housing market. Young adults, we we really are seeing them struggle, first-time home buyers at an all-time low. And we're seeing people really have a difficult time getting in with higher interest rates and higher home prices and very limited housing inventory. Do you see that part of the market turning at any point, the limited inventory and a space for the future 
uh, first time home buyers. I was just telling Isabel before the break, my son got engaged last weekend, which is so exciting. And I know they're going to want to look for a house at some point. I think they are facing incredible headwinds. Yeah, they are. And congratulations to them because that's that's an amazing uh, <laughs> thing to do in itself. Um, it, marriage rates are also down in the country. So uh, certainly seeing those changes as well. So, you know, I think we're in a turning point. Builders seem to understand that there is a consumer out there uh, who very much has been sitting on the sidelines for the last couple of years, has been priced out of the market with baby boomers who are paying all cash and they've been losing out on deals, first time home buyers, and they are starting to get into the market. But we know that we need several years of really ramped up building to really bring the inventory into the market that we need. We're short about six and a half million homes in the U.S. So all of those young adults that we can think about who are trying to find their first place, the struggle is real. And we had the lowest housing inventory of any June that we have ever recorded. And June is a traditional month where we see a lot of people in the buying market. So that just speaks to how tough it is today. What is that lack of inventory doing to prices? As as we talked about earlier in the show, I know there are some places where prices are coming down a little bit. There are some places where prices are still high. Can you put it into perspective with what you're seeing as we've come out of the pandemic and the trends as far as where people actually want to live? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that a lot of people move to Zoom towns or boom towns, however you want to call it. They move to places like Boise, Idaho. They were attracted to Phoenix. Maybe they were working in Silicon Valley, but they didn't have to go into the office anymore. And they were being priced out of places like Portland, Oregon, and Seattle. And so we saw these mountain states become very popular, as well as the Sun Belt. And so we saw these migration trends into the Carolinas, into Florida, into Texas, and that pushed up prices pretty dramatically. Um, In fact, at one point in Austin, Texas, home prices were up 45% year over year. Whoa. That's that's impossible to think about someone who had been living there the entire time trying to find their first home or a retiree who honestly wanted to downsize. How are they going to jump into that market? So yes, in some areas of the country, we are seeing softening, but it's really in those areas that we saw this massive migration flow into. Some areas of the country, though, are still seeing that. Some areas of the country, we're still seeing double-digit home price gains because they're so attractive to move to. It really is a divided market. You know, Jessica, I'm wondering if maybe that is in part because of retirees changing the locations that they're choosing to retire to. You know, it used to be the cliche of you retire and move to Florida, but I think we're, you know, we have been seeing that people are choosing maybe different locations to retire to. So is that a trend that you can speak to at all? Yeah, absolutely. The migration flow, I think, is pretty fascinating. We had traditionally seen from 1989 to 2021, it was really boring and flat. People moved every, like, 10 to 15 miles. That's it. This is pretty boring when we look at the data points. In the last year, they were moving a median of 50. When we look at... uh repeat buyers in the market. So retirees, perhaps they're moving a median of 90 miles and a quarter of buyers are moving more than 470 miles. So they're moving pretty far distances and they are attracted to places like Florida, Texas, uh, Arizona, places where the weather is warm, certainly uh, really overheated currently, but we also are seeing attractive tax situations in those states as well. So they are, are moving to those places. 
As you think about ways for people who want to buy homes or need to buy homes to actually buy them, what sort of advice or um hacks, for lack of a better word, are are on your radar. I've been reading about homeowners actually making mortgage loans to the buyer. And, and that seems to be one potentially crafty, although maybe a little bit fraught sort of a solution. What are you seeing as far as people being able to, if they need to buy a home, buy a home? Yeah. So, we are seeing, and this is not going to work for everyone. I'll talk to the first time home buyers who successfully entered the market last year. When we look at these buyers, they did get pretty savvy. So some of them actually entered the market as roommates saying, I'm tired of renting. Let's pool our incomes. We would be able to actually afford a property together. The other share of buyers that we're seeing too is that they actually moved in first with mom and dad. So doubling up, saving that way uh, for a down payment could be quite helpful. Jessica, how unique is this market? I think it's just interesting because we've seen, you know, interest rates go from almost nothing to where they are right now, which is maybe closer to average, but it doesn't feel that way to someone who maybe two years ago could get a 3% mortgage. You know, we've seen low inventory. We have really strong demand in lots of parts of the country. So I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head around, you know, how unique of a real estate environment are we in right now? We're in this really unique real estate environment, and a lot of it is driven by demographics. And it really has to do with who's living in the country right now. When we think about young adults, we have the biggest population in the U.S. are millennials, mm -hmm. and they're trying to find their first home. We, we really do see the peak of the population is traditionally where we see household formation. At the exact same time that boomers are living longer, they're healthy later in life, they're staying in their primary residence, they're not thinking about moving in with family necessarily or retirement property. Uh, and so we see that these two unique generations, massive generations, are coming head to head. When we look at the inventory, we really are looking at a pretty bleak situation. Coming into the pandemic, we started ringing the alarm bell saying we don't have enough housing inventory. And we had about 2 million units in the marketplace. Today, we have 1 million units in the marketplace. So really thinking about all of these convergence of trends happening at the same time. What's it going to take to right this ship? I know that this year, for example, or 2024 is what they're calling peak 65, the year that more baby boomers turn 65 than any other year. As, as those boomers age and start to need things like assisted living, are you thinking that these curves will come back into a more manageable state or that there will just be more building. I live in the city of Philadelphia. There is so much building going on. It's crazy to me that there could be buyers for all of these apartments that are going up. But as I listen to you, I think maybe these builders are onto something. You know, I I think that people want to age in place. Coming out of the pandemic, this is certainly what we're seeing when even people in the silent generation are going to purchase a home. They're actually saying, I'm planning on staying put. Maybe I'll have a, a nurse come in or a family member, but I'm not planning on 
really budging from this home. The other thing that we have to keep in mind too is because the underbuilding has been going on for a decade, we really do need building. And maybe it's not a brand new property, these new brand new condos, which are are quite expensive and, and luxury units. Maybe it's thinking about revitalizing and adaptive reuse of different spaces. So that vacant office building certainly talked about a lot. What about hotel motels? What about vacant malls, which many suburbs have, um, or even vacant schools? These could be revitalized into smaller units, and there's a lot of people who would be very happy with those units. I grew up on Capitol Hill, and I I saw that a lot, that there were abandoned, you know, schools that have been abandoned for 15, 20 years were turned into really high-end condo units, and people loved them. Yeah, and and there's a whole movement in different parts of the country to put accessory dwelling units in backyards. It sounds to me like zoning boards across the country have their work cut out for them. Jessica, just one last question. As we head into the second half of this year and into 2024, What are your short-term trends for what we're going to see? Well, the big hope is that we suddenly will see, and hopefully we do see, that interest rates will start ticking down. There is movement and definitely... um, we see inflation is easing. And so it's very possible that we see the 30-year fixed tick downwards. And if we do, that's going to open the credit box for a lot of consumers who right now, if they're a homeowner, are feeling quite entrenched with that low interest rate. Maybe they have a motivation to move, but also for consumers to be able to afford buying a home. That could happen. And that's what we hope will happen. And that'll drive higher home sales into 2024. Amazing. Jessica Louts, thank you so much for being with us. I hope you'll come back. I would love to. Thank you. Absolutely. Isabel, I know um, you have a message that you wanted to share with EFE clients. Do you want to let us have that at this point? Yeah, thanks for the time. So um, I wanted just to take a minute to discuss a change recently in the industry, and that is that Schwab recently acquired TD Ameritrade. So if you were a client of TD Ameritrade, like many of Edelman Financial Engines clients, TD Ameritrade maybe was your custodian or you have accounts at TD Ameritrade, you're going to see some things changing in the coming months, really right around that first week in September. So I wanted to clarify for specifically Edelman Financial Engines clients what this means as maybe there's a little confusion or a worry about what's happening and what it means. So in a nutshell, a custodian is a company that holds a client's assets for safekeeping. So Your new relationship with Schwab, if you were a client of TD Ameritrade, will be the same as your relationship was with TD Ameritrade, meaning you'll get your statements from Schwab, you'll get tax forms from Schwab, just like you did from TD Ameritrade. And it's important to note that this is not impacting your relationship with your planner at Edelman Financial Engines, your relationship, your portfolio. And in no way did Edelman Financial Engines merge with Schwab, um, which I think has been sort of a common misconception or misunderstanding. TD Ameritrade merged with Schwab, and they will be our new custodian for many of our clients. Not all, but for many. And it's also important to note that there is no action for you to take in regard to this. Any transactions, like your monthly deposits, withdrawals, all of that will continue. We will be watching over the process to ensure that things go smoothly. And of course, we'll communicate anything to you that needs to be communicated. But the bottom line is just the nature of the industry. You know, companies get acquired, they merge. In this case, the merger occurred with two companies that we were already working with, TD Ameritrade and Schwab. Um, Many Edelman Financial Engines clients were already with Schwab, so that won't be changing for them. But if you were one of the clients who was working with TD Ameritrade, 
bottom line is we're taking care of this for you, this transition for you, nothing you need to do unless you have some unique situation, in which case your planner will talk to you about it. And so that's it kind of in a nutshell, simply. Sounds incredibly seamless, actually, that this is going to just sort of happen behind the scenes and you don't have to do anything. But I'm sure if I have a question, I could pick up the phone and I could call you. Absolutely. Email, call your planner if you have a question, but nothing that you need to do. Amazing. Thank you so much for listening to this show. Isabel, thanks for being here as always. Thanks for having me. Be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or just visit everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.